Welcome to the Future Fits. On the last season of this special series, we brought you two examples of rural communities trying to establish fast and reliable internet where the access afforded to more urban areas was unavailable or dodgy. In one of our French episodes with Katia Gaït, we further explored the internet as a human right. Internet is growing more and more essential to local economies, for access to health and education, to stay connected, and even entertained. This has been doubly true during the pandemic. Better connectivity and bridging the so-called digital divide is a concern for every level of government, federally, provincially, locally. Even major metropolitan cities like Toronto are trying to increase broadband connectivity. But how do communities begin to establish these connections? How do they choose a funding and business model, find partnerships, and connect as many people as possible? What are the barriers in the way of broadband connectivity for all? You're listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. This is Season 2 of The Future Fix, an audio exploration of the way technology and data are shaping communities across Canada. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Each episode, we present community challenges and solutions and take you to places large and small from coast to coast to coast. In this episode, we're going to explore some of the different models of local internet networks and how communities, especially rural ones, can choose the model that works best for their people. To begin, let's talk to Joe Hickey. CEO, president, and founder of Rock Networks. Joe's worked to establish networks in a number of communities, and he's able to break down a few of the various models communities can pursue. Yeah, so Rock Networks uh, is a company that I uh, founded a little over five years ago. Uh, The original genesis of the company was focused on uh, wireless technologies for land mobile radio and uh, public safety type customers. And over the last five years, we've expanded our product portfolio and geographic reach to reach most provinces in Canada. And from a product portfolio, we've expanded into Wi-Fi networks, broadband networks with a focus on rural broadband. And we have also expanded into next generation 911 systems that allow social media to be used in calling 911. And uh, we've also recently announced some product expansion into the satellite space with an announcement for low Earth orbit satellites with OneWeb. So we've got a broad portfolio. Think of us as a system integrator and design, build, and operator for networks uh, across Canada. And I'm specifically interested in in the broadband component. How, How did you decide to get into that, the specifically rural broadband? So about four years ago, May of 2017, I acquired a company in Nova Scotia called Nova Communications. And one of the lineages of Nova was that in the 2008 to 2010 timeframe, 
they supplied did the design and supply for the first generation of rural broadband in Nova Scotia. And broadband at the time was Wi-Fi, uh, utilizing Motorola's Canopy uh, technology, which is now Cambium Networks. At the time, it covered 93,000 homes and was the largest rural broadband project in North America. The uh, definition of broadband back then was 2 megabits download speed and a 0.5 megabit upload speed. Now the definition of broadband at the federal level is 50 down, 10 up. And in reality, most people want gigabit connections today. So broadband, as the pipe expands, it's sort of like air, right? It expands to fill the room. You know, we find more ways to do new and creative things. 15 years ago or 12 years ago, Facebook, YouTube, and all those kind of applications, Snapchat, et cetera, weren't around, Netflix, and now they're driving huge bandwidth requirements on the network. So about three years ago, we embarked upon a product diversification strategy in the company. I'm on the board of directors. I'm a founding board member of a group called the Center of Excellence for Next Generation Networks in Ottawa, or CENGEN. It was a federally funded center of excellence and uh, subsequently received Ontario government funding as well. And at CENGEN, we were looking at, you know, what are the new next generation networks? How does broadband influence the future? How do we look at articulating and architecting those kind of new networks? And so we knew broadband was coming. So we started to look at how could Rock Networks and Nova Communications kind of participate in that. So we looked at uh, kind of three different business models. One was going back to the first customers that we signed up back in the 2010 timeframe, Seaside and Eastlink in Nova Scotia as a way of saying, hey, are you interested in some next generation technologies from partners like we have with Nokia? And um, they had kind of moved on with other partnerships, so that wasn't really viable. Then we looked at becoming our own internet service provider and building networks from scratch, which obviously you need a lot of capital. And then we looked at how do we leverage our network design system integration skill sets and apply that to the broadband space to help other potential customers get into the broadband game. And uh, we were successful in responding to a, a request from uh, Pictou County in Nova Scotia. It was a competition. We competed against some of the larger industry players. And uh, we ended up winning that competition and have started building out a next generation broadband network that Pictou County in Nova Scotia will actually own. And the reason that they picked uh, Rock Networks and Nova Communications was we said, you know, you can actually get into the telecom game and control your own destiny from building these next generation networks. And our goal is to design and build and potentially operate that network, but you, the community, will own the network. And that kind of started our community broadband networks theme in terms of partnership with communities. Now, ownership can be 100% like Picto. It could be 0%, but community influenced or it could be somewhere in the middle with a with a P3 type partnership. So when we talk about community broadband networks, it's really our approach to engage with local communities and basically the ownership is an outcome of investment in the network from different parties. Yeah, I find the different models on offer very interesting for, you know, and you can kind of tailor make it to whatever the municipality decides. At this day and age and especially aggravated by the pandemic, Reliable access to the internet is almost uh, as essential a service as, as water or hydro. And I, I know that the federal government has been making promises about it, and most provincial governments uh, have some sort of strategy. 
even in big cities like Toronto, they're still working on, you know, universal reliable broadband access. So what are the challenges that municipalities face in either creating the infrastructure or bringing up broadband to, to all of the, the people that need it? I guess COVID is, uh, in, in sales terms, we would call it a compelling event. Okay. It motivated everybody to move forward. I mean, we were working on community broadband with Picto a year and a half before COVID happened. But what COVID did was marshal the government to realize and really it exposed the digital divide in Canada, right? And that digital divide is primarily rural Canada, but there are areas and pockets of Toronto, as an example, like you point out, the city of Toronto is looking at doing their own network because, you know, they don't have coverage everywhere they want, even within the, the greater metro uh, Toronto re- region. But primarily the issue is a, is a rural issue. Mm-hmm. When we think about the challenge for communities, one is kind of figuring out how they participate in the value chain. And so there's a lot of assessments being done where the communities are putting up their own money to kind of say, what is the broad state of broadband in our area? How do we go about uh, raising funds if we want to participate in the network? The federal government and the Ontario government in the last 10 months combined have put in, I think, almost $6 billion or $7 billion grant money available Right. So governments have really gotten serious about solving the problem. And the goal is, you know, 100 percent of Canadians connected by 2030, no, no later than 2030. So now communities have a source of grant money. And in rural Canada, without the grant money, there is not really an economic business case for a private or publicly traded company like Bell, Rogers, et cetera, to actually build these networks. The time to pay back, if you will for that investment versus the revenue stream uh, is quite long. Mm-hmm. With the government subsidies, now you have an opportunity to supplement the cost of building a network, so their grant monies. The government of Canada has also added Canada Infrastructure Bank to provide low interest loans. So now communities, the challenge of having some grant resources available, that challenge has been somewhat removed. Is the, is the billions of dollars enough to finish every single person in Canada? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. Billions more required, but it is a great starting point. The other challenge for communities is looking at it from a business model perspective for them and how do they participate. And so part of the challenge is how do the communities get seed money to kind of do that analysis? And that actually becomes a big stumbling block. And the reason it's a stumbling block is communities don't necessarily know the technology and the technology options. So they need to work with third parties to kind of help with that. So it has a cost, obviously. And at the end of the day, it's another expenditure that is competing for other expenditures in the community, roads, bridges, waterworks, et cetera. So that seed capital, there's nothing that has really addressed that. And so it has to come from the community itself. So what Pictou County did was they used their gas tax money to do that seed capital investment. So that is a source of funds. The federal government contributes that to municipalities across Canada. And Pictou used that money to do their high-level design, which we did on their behalf and submitted to them. Other customers uh, dip into the reserve funds. And when you're a single community, that's an easier task. But imagine that you want to create a regional network. So 
northern Ontario or southwestern Ontario or eastern Ontario, and there's many municipalities involved, you can think about the complexity of bringing all those different municipalities together. And so, you know, Rock Networks, we've been working to help municipalities address those issues of getting groups together and then submitting applications to the federal government for grant money and trying to get over that initial seed capital investment hump, if you will. As you say, the the current goal is really to bridge that digital divide, as you call it. But once, let's say we reach that goal, what are some ways that these municipalities, once they have that infrastructure, can ensure the sustainability and the affordability of these networks? Because as you say, the, the big hurdle initially is is the capital expenditure, but we all know that municipalities, uh, they struggle with operating budgets for basically any line item. So what would your recommendations to municipalities who now have their broadband network to uh, maintain it in, in a sustainable and affordable way? Well, it comes down to what is the role of the municipality and what role do they want to play? Mm-hmm. Do they want to become a telco? and be like Bell Canada and operate a network, while municipalities aren't built to be telcos. Mm -hmm. So they need partners. And so they got to think about how the partnership model allows them to basically have a say in the network rollout and the deployment. But the ongoing operations, they need to work with experts in the field to design, build, and operate it because those skill sets don't sit in the communities today. They sit in the telcos, they sit in the ISPs, they sit in the cable companies, they sit in the OEMs, and they sit in companies like Rock Networks, mm-hmm. right? That's where the fee sits. So they've got to decide on what is that partnership model, and then based on how much money they want to raise, what the equity stake they will have in the business, if any. Mm-hmm. So, and that's back to that, you know, 0% to 100% or P3 partnership model in in, in the middle, where Maybe the outcome is a share in the revenue, a share in the equity, but the operations is run by, you know, uh, experts in the field. And so there's different views at different municipalities on that. Some municipalities want to scale up and, and bring those resources on board once the network is built because they see it as an economic transformation opportunity within their community. Others are just thankful to get the broadband resources and capability in their community. And then there's some that are in the middle, right? So that's why every single community is different. And it comes down to understanding what the core competencies you have in your community. Some communities don't have an IT department, so can they run a network? Other communities like Toronto has a robust IT infrastructure, so maybe they can run their own network, right? So it comes down to that level of skill set and competency and understanding that and accepting that and then moving the project forward with the experts that you need to bring in. So it's a, a big decision for communities to make. Not every community is up to the uh, the challenge and nor should they be, but they should reap some of the economic benefits of having broadband brought to their community. And that's that's our goal to work in partnership with communities to get them to the outcome that they're looking for. And the main outcome, first and foremost, the priority is, can we get broadband for everybody? Now, Sally Braun is the general manager of the Western James Bay Telecom Network, based in Moose Factory and Timmins, Ontario. 
She's currently overseeing the rollout of a $4.7 million fiber-to-home project for the northern communities of Attawapiskat, Kasheshawan, and Fort Alberni. She tells us how these communities arrived at this particular model, how they found partners to see it through, and how COVID and climate change are constantly threatening to derail broadband projects in northern and indigenous communities. We work with Attawapiskat First Nation, Kasheshawan First Nation, and Fort Albany First Nation. We also have, under our tribal council, like a shelter in uh, Moosonee, Ontario. And we work with Moose Creek First Nation also. Mm-hmm. We also somewhat work with uh, Pawanik and Fort Severn through other partnerships that we have. And in these communities, you're, you're trying to build out a broadband network. Yes. Well, in Attawapiskat, Fort Albany, and Cash, we're in the process of deploying a fiber-to-the-home network to about 1,200 homes. What currently is the connectivity there like? Well, on the residential side, it's managed by a company called Mascatel out of Quebec. Mm-hmm. And we sell bandwidth to them. And then there's satellite in Attawapiskat. I don't believe there's satellite in uh, Cache or Fort Albany. Attawapiskat also has a cable uh, internet. But there used to be cable in Fort Albany and Cache also, but that plant has deteriorated over the years. ExploreNet is also in Attawapiskat. Can you tell me what what drives you to work in these communities and specifically with connectivity and sort of bridging that digital gap? Well, I guess it's mostly because we, well, the Tribal Council, Meshkego Tribal Council, started WJBTN quite a few years ago, about 12 years ago. And the focus was to provide better connectivity for the anchor institutions. And that's sort of our bread and butter right now is we provide connections to about 44 anchor institutions in these communities, like the hospitals and the schools and uh, band offices. So that's basically why we, we, we got started, but it was always the intention to branch into the residential side of things mm-hmm. as soon as we were able to uh, pull together the funding for this particular project. So this project really started at the community level? Yes, very much so. To your mind, do, do you know of many other uh, councils that have started a telecom with the goal of connectivity? I think we were the first. Mm-hmm. There are others, and the reason why I'm saying that we were the first, maybe in our region, in Ontario, like for the fiber to the home idea concept, is because I know that there's not a lot of fiber runs in other parts of the country. They're being rolled out now, but they're at the stage where we were 12 years ago, and that is they're at the stage where they're they're bringing the fiber in over large sections of uninhabited terrain mm-hmm. to reach an endpoint in a community. So they'll have a point of presence there. 
And from there, maybe they'll decide to opt for a fiber-to-the-home solution. The other reason I know is that there's not a lot of other tribal councils doing this is because over the last 14 months, myself and my assistant, my technical lead, we have received many phone calls from First Nations that are trying to do what we are doing now. And I feel so sorry for some of these First Nations that really got caught with this COVID situation Mm -hmm. uh, in a bind where their leadership was simply not able to lead. They didn't have the communication platform in place at all for the leadership to be able to call in from their homes or take part in Zoom calls. And even in our case, we ran into multiple problems in this area also with COVID over the last 14 months Mm -hmm. because our network was not set up to offer residential connectivity. That was a third party was looking after that side of things. So we've been working to try and enhance that in partnership with the wireless provider. We have been trying to help our leadership as much as we can. Yeah. Uh, on top of the logistical problems that COVID created, it, it also caused people to rely on the internet and connectivity to stay connected to to the world and to do business. And as you said, hop on Zoom meetings, whatever you need to do. And if you if you don't have reliable internets, then you you can't really participate. Exactly. And the other issue, and the the other reason why we set forth on the Fiber to the Home project was that the larger telcos that are in the community are allowing their legacy equipment to expire. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's there's no incentive for them to come in and upgrade their legacy equipment so that the landlines work better, for example. There are situations where people would normally be able to use a landline, but they can't because the uh, repair technician hasn't been able to fly into the community to repair the problem mm-hmm. because of COVID. And so you you mentioned the partnerships. I wonder if you have thoughts on, you know, what what sort of partnerships and, and ownership models a community should seek out when they're looking to do something like you're trying to do? I, I would highly suggest that the business model that would that you would choose would be one that kept the ownership in the community, mm-hmm. the revenue stream in the community, the, the uh, skilled labor that's required to operate the network, that, that be kept in the community. Because as we have learned from COVID, we ignore developing these assets in the community at our peril. And this is the mistake we made as Western James Bay. We did not have the assets in the community where someone in the community could start rolling out the fiber to the home in the absence of our technical project manager who resides in Southern Ontario. Right. So I would suggest keep it local if you can. Mm -hmm. Or we also worked with trusted partners, people that that we knew 
for example, there's one company that provided uh, technical advice to us over many, many years, and they were approached to be the technical lead on this project. And, and, and in terms of just the, the physical infrastructure, uh, beyond just the geography of, of being so far north, are there sort of unique barriers to this kind of connectivity or what's, what's involved in, in sort of getting that going? I would have to say that it's becoming more and more obvious. Over the last 10 years, I, I've seen evidence of uh, challenges in terms of keeping the connectivity going in terms of climate change. We're seeing it over in Potangicum now and uh, communities in northwestern Ontario. Okay, forest fires. Mm -hmm. We're we're seeing temperatures that I have never seen in the north Mm -hmm. where it causes the the HVAC systems in the shelters to fail. We have shelters in all the communities, Mm -hmm. and these are climate-controlled. When the HVAC system goes, that's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. When that goes, we need to fly people in to to, to fix it. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a huge issue. Another issue is that, you know, ice buildup, erosion of riverbanks, which means that the transmission line that brings the, uh, the fiber optic up the coast into the communities has to span the Albany River, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ice damage can cause the hydro poles to fall into the Albany River, which is what happened a few years ago. Right. Lightning strikes. uh, Really, really uh, scary weather, (laughs) like tornadoes, high winds. I mean, uh, you name it. We've had it thrown at us in the last 10 years. You have to be ready for that. Yeah, that's that's a connection I never would have made. I mean, obviously, uh, climate change is a huge issue, but uh, I I never would have considered it a, a barrier to establishing you know broadband connectivity for for communities. Well, it, it is pretty critical. It's it's also a factor if you want to use satellite as a as a backup because mm-hmm. satellite can be affected by weather also. So, yeah, we're very aware of the weather. Well, Sally, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You're very, very welcome. I don't think I need to belabor the point about how essential the internet is to modern life and livelihoods. Unless someone burnt you this podcast on a CD like it was high school in the 90s, you're using the internet to listen to me right now. But every community has individual needs and realities. And while the goal of internet access should be universal... The way that happens doesn't need to be. In a world where Internet for Everyone is a human right, finding the right type of network for each community is the fix. Thank you for listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. We are a partnership between Spacing Magazine and Evergreen for the Community Solutions Network, a program of Future Cities Canada. As the program lead, Evergreen is working with Open North and partners to help communities of all sizes across Canada navigate the smart cities landscape. The Community Solutions Network is supported with funding provided by Infrastructure Canada. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. And our creative consultant is Sanchita Rajvanchi. 
We'll be back with another Future Fix, where we'll be talking about the digital battle against COVID. So be sure to subscribe to the Spacing Radio podcast feed.